are so grateful for your love, Lord, that you would bring peace, that you would send your son to bear our sins on the cross, your perfect, righteous, just wrath against our sin, Lord, so that we might be reconciled to you. And so, Lord, now we just rejoice in the fact that we are your people, we are your children, you love us, and you'll bring us home one day. So we pray now as we come before your word, Lord, that you would instruct us by your word, Lord, open our hearts, Lord, change our lives, our attitudes. We ask for your help in Christ's name. Amen. Good? Good, okay. Um, so, I'm sure you all know, but just in case you don't, we're going through a series called the We Believe series, and so we have today the task of talking about church discipline, which can be kind of a scary topic. Um, I had a friend once say, like, every time we talk about church discipline, everybody starts thinking, oh no, who is it? <laughs> Why are we talking about this? Okay, so, uh, preemptive. <laughs> like, there's nothing that we know of at this point that it's going to require church discipline. We just want to talk about church discipline, what it is, what it means for uh, church membership. Um, so we'll be looking at some passages. Um, I think, um, you know, this is anecdotal, completely anecdotal. But it seemed like the, the verse that if you talk to people, like in the world, who really didn't have any idea what was going on with Christianity, but if you ask them if they knew a Bible verse, it would probably be John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Which is a great verse for them to know. I mean, that is that is the heart of the gospel, God's love in Christ. Um, I think, though, considering where we are kind of as a culture and the fact that uh, the church disagrees with some of the lifestyle choices that are becoming mainstream in our culture, the the verse that I'm hearing a lot is comes from Matthew seven: "Judge not, lest ye be judged." All right? Yeah, that I think has taken the number one spot. As I said, total anecdotal. I tried to look at Gallup poll. Apparently, don't poll on stuff like this. But that's the one I've been heard thrown at me um, more often than not now. Okay, judge not lest you judge. Um, and generally when people in our culture are using that verse, they are basically trying to say you have no right to judge our lifestyle choice. Right? So we can choose whatever we want. Um, but really in the context of that verse, and this is just a little bit of pretext for the sermon. We're not going to really get into it too deeply. But in the context of that verse, what Jesus Christ was attacking it's not the fact that you're judging, but you're judging with hypocrisy. Um, a hypocrisy that says that they see themselves as morally superior to another person. So it's, it's not, not just that you're judging their sin, but you're doing it from like, I am better than you. I, I have a more moral life than you. Therefore, I have the prerogative to speak into your life and tell you the way you should be. And we know that's what Jesus is getting at. Because in a couple of verses later, he says, Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but not notice the log in your own? That is, you've become more consumed with identifying other people's sin, all the while assuming that you yourself have no sin to deal with. 
So Christ says, you hypocrites, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So what Jesus is getting at is that when addressing the sins and other people, because he also talks about that too, he's not in this verse, so, and we're going to look at some of those verses. When you are actually addressing the sin and the lives of other people, we start from a place of genuine humility that we ourselves are recipients of God's grace. That we need God's grace just as much as anyone. That we have as much blood on our hands as anyone else. That you and I are equally damnable. That you and I, if given what we deserved, would be sent to an eternal and abiding, perfectly fair, perfectly righteous wrath of God for eternity, and it would be right. But the Son of God came, he bore the Father's wrath on the cross, so that we would be freed from the power of sin. That we'd be able to address sin in our lives, that we wouldn't be slaves to sin any longer. So hypocrisy sees another person's sin nailing Christ to the cross, but not their own. And truly, if you never see Christ atoning for your sin on the cross, if you do not accept, as one person put it, Christ's bleeding charity, then it is doubtful that your sin is atoned for. If you do not see Christ as your Savior dealing with your sin, it's doubtful your own sin has been atoned for. The Apostle Paul, I think, stands as a good example of addressing sin in people's lives, but with the attitude of humility when he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. I was the chief of sinners. And the very fact I get to point out these things to you is simply because of God's transforming grace in my life. So it's by the grace of God I say to you, and then addresses the issue. So this is a place, before we even take a single step in this conversation about church discipline, if we come at it with, like, shame on you, what do you think you're doing? Like, I can't believe it. You did that, all right? I would never. Like, if you have that condemning attitude, then Christ says there's probably an attitude issue in your own heart. If we're going to take the right step towards church discipline, we start right here, that we are all recipients of Christ's grace. So, I think that's what the world misunderstood. Maybe we'll get a chance to talk about it. All right, so... The attitude that's creeping into the culture and creeping in into churches, you're seeing it with churches, is this attitude of always being affirming and never judging. Like you affirm a person, but you never judge them. And I think when this gets into the church, um, it comes from an insufficient view of what the gospel is. So I'm going to read to you um, two statements like the gospel. I'll say gospel one, gospel two. Right? And let's, let's see the difference between them. So, um, to be fair, for these phrases, I'm actually, I could have done this, but this guy did it so much better than me, succinctly than me. I think succinct is what I was going for. If I go, it's like, blah, 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 blah. So, uh, I'm, I'm reading right now. So, he says, okay, um, the first presentation of the gospel. God is holy. We have sinned. Separating us from God. But God sent his son to die on the cross and rise again so that we might be forgiven. Everyone who believes in Jesus can have eternal life. We're not justified by works. We're justified by faith alone. The gospel, therefore, calls all people to just believe 
An unconditionally loving God will take you as you are. Which actually, when I go around and I share the gospel, that's pretty much my most part saying. But let me read the second one. Because there's something missing. It's incomplete. So, the second, second phrase of the gospel. Okay, so take it again. God is holy. We have all sinned. Separating us from God. But God sent his son to die on the cross and rise again so we might be forgiven and begin to follow the son as king and lord. Anyone who repents and believes can have eternal life, a life which begins today and stretches into eternity. We're not justified by works. We're justified by faith alone. But as James tells us, faith with, which, faith with works is never alone. The gospel therefore calls all people to repent and believe. A contra-conditionally loving God will take you contrary to what you deserve and enable you by the power of his spirit to become holy and obedient like his son. By reconciling you to himself, God also reconciles you to his family, the church, and enables you as his people to represent together his own holy character and triune glory. Okay, so the difference. The first presents... Jesus as Savior, good. But the second presents Jesus as Savior and Lord. The first points at Christ's work of forgiveness, but the second includes both Christ's forgiveness and the fact that he sends the Spirit into our hearts to regenerate us, to change us. The first points to the fact that we have a new status as Christians, that we're the children of God, but the second also includes not just the fact that we're the children of God, but we have a new job description. We're not just cha- we don't just change our status, but we change our jobs in this world. That Christians are citizens of Christ's kingdom, and they behave like citizens of Christ's kingdom. So a church that views the gospel as simply Christ's work of forgiving, and that's it, stop right there, will not have any room for church discipline. They will not need it. Whereas a church that views the gospel as Christ's work as both Savior and Lord will see the church discipline as necessary because... It is a direct outflow of what the gospel is. So, two things we're going to look at. Church discipline is necessary. So, one, what is church discipline? Two, what does church discipline mean for us as a church? So, to understand what church discipline is, we're going to look at two pairs of passages. They'll go together. So, go ahead and open to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, and we'll start in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, this is verse 13, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom, uh, the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was 
the Christ. Okay, so um, after the We Believe series, we're going to be going back into the book of Matthew, and we'll address, no doubt, this passage in great detail. And one of them dealing with was um, Jesus establishing the Pope right here in Peter. Like, the Pope has the ability to bind and loose here on earth. Uh, of course, being Protestants, we would argue not. Okay. Um, so, but let's assume that. So here we are having the confession of Jesus, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that Jesus is the Messiah. Um, and it's upon this reality, this blessedness that Peter recognizes this, um, that Christ says he would build his church. Now, Jesus only mentions, mentions by name the church twice. Here, and then the other passage deals with church discipline. Okay? So, what does uh, church mean? Okay. Now, the, the word church... Like, it's so ingrained with us culturally. You think church, you think a building, or like this. Um, but more broadly speaking, um, the, the church is an assembly of people. People who come together with a common identity and a common purpose. Like, a church, as we say, the church is not the building, the church is the people. Right. So, Christ is building a church. And by the way, when he says the gates of hell will not prevail against it, what's the direction of attack? Whose gates are being stormed? Hell's gates. Ah, yes, the church is Christ's campaign against the gates of hell as they plunder Satan by bringing the gospel into all the nations, people being saved, by the way. So just in case you start getting depressed with what's going on, just remember that. And then he says, like, part of that ability to go and to um, be the church, he says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. So, now this, okay, this is kind of, I don't really like to bring up, Greek a whole lot. But this is one of the trickiest verses in the Bible to translate. Um, because, and it, you'll see it, you're going to have a footnote, I guarantee it, probably in your translation. Okay? So, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. That's true. Okay? That's what he's getting at. But it's clunky, it's jarring, just a little bit. And it, it's jarring. If you were Greek and you're reading this, you'd be like, oh, that's weird. Why do you say it that way? Just like, way like, eh, what's going on here? Okay, here's the idea. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been already bound in heaven. It was already bound in heaven, therefore it's going to be bound in the future. Okay? And whatever you loose on earth shall have already been loosed in heaven. Therefore it's going to be loosed in the future. So just to make sure that what is happening here, so when there's this binding and loosing uh, in this earthly terms, here on earth, is reflecting an already heavenly activity, okay? Which means that um, we are not determining the policies of heaven. Heaven's determining the policies on earth. That's what that verse is saying. So, okay, well, jab again. So, like, when you say the Pope binds and looses, no, 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 no. Christ binds and looses and is reflected in what happens in the church. Christ gives his divine guidance to the church to bind and to loose. Okay, so this was the first of the two... Um, passages we're going to look at. So keep this in mind. They just had this conversation. Christ says, there's going to be a church, and you're going to have the power to bind the loose. Now turn to Matthew 18, where he brings this up again. So the two places that Christ brings up this church and this binding and loosing, we have it here in Matthew 16, and then we have it here in Matthew 18, so they're kind of paired together. Okay. Now Matthew 18 is considered like the church discipline passage. So anybody talks about church discipline and they don't bring up Matthew 18, you're asked, like, what are they talking about? Like, why are they doing it without talking about what Jesus said about it? 
So Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen, then tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So in this church discipline, that's what we call it, church discipline, with witnesses and people are coming together and making these decisions if this person is in or out, Christ says, in this process, I am with you. All right, some observations then. First of all, there is a clear inside the community and outside the community element to this discussion. Okay? So you have a brother. Brother means close association. We call each other as Christians brothers and sisters. So there's this community of brothers and sisters, and someone sins. Now, if, it's, if the person is unrepentant, 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 then he says, they shall be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Now, if you are a Jew, like, the world consists of two types of people, Jew and not Jew. Oh, and scumbags. Okay, so Jew and not Jew. So it's Jew and Gentile. Okay, so you'd be like the outsiders and the scumbags. Those are the tax collectors who betrayed their people to the Gentiles. So, um, so... Christ is saying you should treat them and think of them as not a part of community, not a part of God's covenant people community. Treat them as outsiders. So there's this inside-outside attitude here. Secondly, it is obvious that the primary concern of Jesus is the person's repentance. The goal of addressing someone's sin is not primarily for you who have been sinned against to get revenge. It's not, against, it's not some type of retribution, per se, or some type of restitution like I was, you know, I, I'm owed this by this person. No. Christ is saying when you've been sinned against, you go and address that person's sin so that they might repent. The, it's not about your restitution. It's about their restoration. Okay, so this is then important, okay, that church discipline is necessary. And, okay, and we tend to, tend to use church discipline as in, like, the last step, like what we call, some people call excommunication, like bringing them out of the community. But this idea of church discipline starts with any moment someone addresses sin. And Jesus is telling you, you have the prerogative to address someone's sin for their sake. For your sake, he says. For your sake. Their sake. That you want them to repent of the sin. You want to, as he says, gain a brother. Because, like, for people like me, I hate conflict, hate it so much. I will avoid conflict to the very last possible minute, okay? I, according to Jesus, I'm not being loving towards my brother or sister because it's for their sake I would address the sin that I see or has been done to me. And this concern is also seen by the fact that Jesus says, start small. Okay? It's not like, okay, if you're trying to get retribution, 
if someone does something against you, oh, man, you tell everyone, right? This person did this, they did this, they did this. And Jesus says, no. You start, you go one-on-one, okay, and then talk it out. Because sometimes, as we all know, a lot of it's just perspective, right? They did not mean to sin against you. There was no sin. But if there's an issue, it's clear there's an issue, and the person's being unrepentant about it, then you bring two or three. And, then, and so, so the idea is restoration, and you're just trying, you know, give the, pe- the person at first the benefit of the doubt and, then, and grow from there. So that is the loving way to address it. So church discipline is, is part of the day-to-day life togetherness of the church. A healthy church, a healthy community of believers, points out each other's sin. The hope is that there's a lot of this step one happening. Every once in a while, some step two, bringing some more people in on it. And then, very rarely, this last step of bringing the whole church into it. But by and far, the expectation is sin's getting addressed on this one-on-one basis. It's part of our ongoing sanctification, our letting go of sin and embracing holiness. All right, so there's this inside-outsideness to it. There's, the idea is repentance. That's what we're going for, repentance. And then third, there is some element of judgment going on here. This was judge not lest you, know, you be judged. Is Jesus saying you never judge? The answer is no. There are times that you judge, and we're looking at one of them. We know that there's judgment going on. He doesn't use the word judgment per se, but he's using courtroom language. Bring two or three witnesses. You read Deuteronomy. You read the law where you handle cases of wrongdoing, okay, you bring two or three witnesses with you if it's going to go any further than someone's not paying you back or making restitution. So by the very context of Jesus saying, you bring two or three witnesses, he's saying there's going to be some decision, some judgment ruled on this issue. And then after, like, witnesses are brought to bear on this case and the church as a community is brought to bear on this case and the person is still unrepentant, then there's, like, this binding or loosing, like binding. Right? Being bound or being loose, being free. Okay? So, and again, reflecting a heavenly reality. When you bind, you loose, you're reflecting the heavenly reality. Because okay? there are going to be times, there will be people in the church who profess to follow Christ. And there would be no reason to question that. I mean, do we know for certain every person sitting in these pews who profess to be Christians are Christians? Okay. All right. So we, we don't, per se, we, we trust, we give the benefit of the doubt that they are, and their lifestyle hopefully agrees with that. But for, for the, our own safety, for all of us, our own safety, address sin and bring it out. Because if someone is not, okay, or, or someone is clinging to sin so hard, even, even a even a brother or sister is just so entrapped by a sin, they, they need this to happen. So a person will not let go of a sin. They will not repent. They will not repent. So the church says, you are not one of us. You are not one of us. You are to us an outsider. Could we be wrong? Could it be that you have a Christian who's just so entrapped by sin, and you say, no, you're not a, we, can't, we, can't, we can't say you're a Christian. Your lifestyle just does not reflect that reality. Could they be a Christian? We could be wrong. And that's why, in some cases, 
church discipline, in a sense, works. And even after they've been excommunicated, and we'll talk about that in a second, like what that's going to mean, like excommunicated, they will repent and come back. You've gained a brother. Sometimes, not at all. As one, at one of the churches that we were at down in the Bay Area, the lady who was having an adulterous affair said, I'd rather burn them in hell than go back to my other husband. And that reveals the heart and the act of repentance. First Corinthians chapter 5. Turn there. So, so Jesus gives us kind of the framework of which to work with here. And now... In 1 Corinthians, Paul's going to deal with an issue of church discipline. All right. So 1 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from and among you. Pause. So there's like this blatant sexual immorality, a sexual deviancy of even a type that their cultures wouldn't even accept it. That's weird. The world would look at it. And they're arrogant. They're not just like harboring the sin. They're celebrating it. Unfortunately, I think, is what churches are doing with some of the lifestyle choices today. They say, no, no, it's okay. Come on in. We'll celebrate the fact that you can live this way and be a Christian. Paul says, you should be ashamed. Remove this from among you. Verse 3. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. As if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who has done such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus... And my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Which is just a complicated passage. What does it mean to be handed over to Satan? In some sense, I think only God knows, right? Maybe Satan. But hand him over, like basically, not belonging to the kingdom of God, put him out into the kingdom of Satan, let Satan have his way so that his soul might be saved. Okay, so Paul's going to go on and start addressing, like, the Corinthians. But do note that the restoration of this person is what he's aiming for. He wants this person restored. Remove him from among you. Hand him over to Satan that his flesh may be destroyed, that his soul might be saved. Okay, now he gets back to the Corinthians. Your boasting is not good. You do not know that a little leaven leavens a whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and of evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people. I wrote to you about this. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of, the, of this world, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or the idolaters, since then you would have need to go out of the world. So Christ's saying, I'm not saying don't associate with people with these lifestyle choices. That's not what I'm saying. Okay. But what I was saying is, do not associate with anyone who bears the name 
brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. So the question is not, the lifestyle choices per se, well, it is a problem. Don't, he's saying don't associate with people with these sins blatant in their lives who say they're your brother. Do not give them the comforts of thinking they're your brother. Don't even associate with them. Twelve, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? I have no business judging outsiders. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Question, yes. Answer, God judges those on the outside, but for yourselves, he quotes from Scripture, purge the evil person from among you. Purge. Okay. So we already know that church discipline is intended for the restoration and repentance of the individual, but there is more to it. And this passage is bringing up the more to it. First of all, notice that Paul's primary concern in this instance is purity. Purity. Sin has a corrupting effect. It corrupts a people. You gather as a people, you know, the, the rotten apple spoils the whole barrel. Okay? Or if you've ever made sourdough, right, you can take sourdough that's leavened, put it in with unleavened bread, and the whole thing becomes leavened. It, so if you think of leaven as corrupting, then it corrupts the whole thing. But Christ has died to cleanse us from our sin. We are to be holy. As a people, we are to be holy. Will there be struggles with sin? Yes. So cleanse. Remove it. If there's a sin in your life, Christ gives you the power to overcome it. Remove it. If there is sin festering in the life of a person, and that person is corrupting the church, and it does... God, trust God on this. He knows what goes on in the hearts of people. Purge. Remove it. The spiritual reality is that sin will fester, and a sin that celebrates sin cannot be healthy any more than a room full of poisonous gas could be healthy. Secondly, the issue with the offender is not that they sinned, and then like, oh, and then it's immediately, repent, immediate, immediately repentant. The issue here is his lifestyle reflects his nature. His lifestyle is reflecting his nature. Paul says, do not associate with people who call themselves brother and is guilty of, okay, now, we use ESV here primarily, but you probably don't all use ESV. ESV adds a word to help you out, guilty. Guilty of, and I'm reading this. So who is guilty of being this? Okay, they're, they're just trying to help bring this across better for you. But he says, who is, so you can remove guilty and still get the idea. And that's probably what some of your other translations, if you're in the King James Version, the King, New King James, it just says, who is a sexually immoral? Who is an idolater? Who is, so it's like, your very identity is wrapped up in this sin. Like, you want, one thing you know about this person, among other things, he has his brother's wife. And his whole identity is based on that. Or he is an idolater. His whole identity is based on this. So this is ongoing. They're known for this sin. And their whole identity 
the eyes of people is wrapped up in that. So it's a lifestyle of continued unrepentance and not unindulging. Unindulging in the sin. Not fighting it. Giving into it. Liking it. And then, because the sin is actually particularly deviant sexually, so, you know, like some weird incest going on. So we think, like, oh, the issue here is that like, it's this gross sin, and well, how could that gross sin be in the church? So they think it's like the, just like the, the blatant grossness of it is the issue. And it's really not, because look at some of the other things in the list. Okay, so yeah, that one really stands out. But there are other things, like, okay, so just sexual immorality in general. Okay? Any sexual immorality, sexual activity outside of marriage that God says is immoral, sex is for the marriage, anything outside of it is sexual immorality. Anything. Greed. Greed? Or covetousness? Is that another word? Covetousness? That is, it's a person consumed with having more, getting more, having more, getting more, climbing, 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 getting more, never satisfied. In other words, a good old-fashioned consumerist American. Right? Never content. It's close to home. Closer to home than maybe an idolater. But idolatry. One who worships other things, other gods. Flip it around. Someone who does not solely worship God. I think you start getting to the heart issue. Another thing I think has been growing in the church recently is like you age mysticism like yoga and um, like if you think it it happens sort of mentality I guess I can name names I probably won't but just listen and it starts sounding new age-ish probably right idolatry creeping into the church it's another religion coming in it's called syncretism right and God hates it a reviler that is someone who is verbally abusive a drunkard, someone who habitually gets drunk. A swindler, someone who takes advantage of people for gain. And is this a conclusive list? Is this all of them? No. Every, every list that gets in the New Testament, it's, like, it's just reflective. Reflective. These are probably issues that they might be dealing with as a church. But like these lists, they always have different things in them. So it's not a conclusive list. It's a reflective list. But the idea is that it's an unrepentant sin that they're living as if Christ had not made a change in their hearts. The Christians are not to be identified by these behaviors because for freedom, Christ has set us free. And if you're bound by sin, it makes you wonder if you've been set free. Christ gives us new desires, new patterns of life. And the church cannot give someone the comfort of thinking that it is well with their souls when it is not. So the church must demonstrate the reality that a person who behaves in this way cannot belong to the kingdom of God. Therefore, they're removed from fellowship because, in a sense, they are removed from the fellowship of God. They are not part of the kingdom's citizens. And then, third, observe that therefore then, not just for the sake of the person, but for the sake of the purity of the church, the church must judge on these matters. We must. This is an act of discipline including removing him from the fellowship. A church that will not excommunicate is not healthy. So Paul says, you won't judge, I'll judge. 
I'll do it from a distance with a letter. I judge on this matter. You should have. For the sake of the person, for the sake of the church, you must remove them from fellowship. Now, in what sense are they removed? Like, what is this binding? What's the removing? What does it entail? Well, back in those days, small cities, not very many churches, right? The gospel's first getting into Corinth, Corinth, small church, okay? They were very tight-knit. Like, you knew when you were a Christian, and the world knew when you were a Christian, and they got together in houses because they were that small, big houses sometimes. But they, they gathered in houses, and they would say, you cannot eat with us. You cannot, certainly cannot participate in communion. You cannot participate in communion if you do this. Sometimes, but not always, it involves removal from the church. Sometimes you just, you're in the church. We let unbelievers in the church. This is not like a Christians-only club, right? No, come on in, hear the gospel. But in some way, you have to be able to, the person has to know that though they are with us, they're not one of us. That somehow we're treating them, reaching out with them as the gospel. Like, you need to be saved. You need to repent. You need, and either that's going to make them very uncomfortable and they'll never show up again, right? And, and sometimes it's false teaching, in which case Paul says get them out of the church. They go. A false teacher cannot stay ever. When he says don't even eat with them, it's like, like, don't associate it with them, and even to a lesser degree. Like, the great thing, like, disassociate them, and even to a lesser degree, don't even eat with them. Now look, like, when the moment comes, and your friend is the one who's getting church discipline, you must trust God. You must trust God. Because you want your friendship. You want it, right? And, and you may not trust that they would repent. And what you think they need is just, like, come like come to my house. Let's just keep talking about it. Keep talking about it. Keep, talk, keep working. Keep working. Keep working. Keep trying to get them to... God says, God knows what he's doing. Remove them. And that will burn their soul. And they'll come back if they're a Christian or they'll leave if they're not. But trust God that he knows the process. He knows men's heart better than you. He knows what will work. Now, families, family members. Okay. So the thing is, like, okay, why did I even open up this can of worms? But, okay, they, they, almost every pastor I've looked into would say, eat with them. They're your family. Family, in the sense that family unit comes first before the friendship units, right? But just as long as they understand. Christian, if you do this, Christ will not accept you. You do not belong to the kingdom. This, just as long as they understand and they know this. So, for us as Red Christian Fellowship of Fortuna, if we're going to be the salt and the light that we need to be, we must deal with sin. Now, quickly, quickly, let's turn to Second Corinthians two, verse five. This is on the flip side. This is like the get this person out of the church and. 2 Corinthians 2 is probably the person who repented and returned. The discipline had its desired effect. So 2 verse 5, 
Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it to me. But in some measure, not to put it severely to all of you, for such a one is punished by the majority, and it is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, that he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and to know whether you are obedient in everything. For anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. And indeed, when I have forgiven, I have forgiven anything. It has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. So we would not be outwitted by Satan. We were not ignorant of his designs. So Paul is saying, okay, if you just kind of look up and around, Paul's like addressing his severe letter that he sent to them. And one of the things is, oh, and about that sinner. What sinner? Could there be another sinner? Okay, maybe we can't be dogmatic, but it really does seem like the person that got kicked out in the last letter. Okay, So that's, that's kind of where I stand on this. So this person gets kicked out, and there's repentance, and he wants forgiveness. And it's almost like the Corinthians are like overdoing it now. Like Paul said, you're out. Right? So you're out. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. Forgive. Bring them back in. It's over. Right? And, and then he says, and we're not outwitted by Satan's schemes. It's like Satan's getting you on both directions. Like you could just allow us in to stay in the church. That's Satan attacking your church. Or on the other end, you don't quickly restore the person. And it's causing division. And that's Satan attacking the church again. Like, man, dear Lord, help us. So we're not outwitted. But here's the thing. That it has the effect for which is meant. That people will repent. So that's the other power. So what does this mean for church? What does church discipline mean for church membership? I, I don't think I understood membership. When I, was, when I was studying in seminary, I didn't understand membership until I understood church discipline. Because I understood it finally in context. Like, oh, so if church discipline means this, means this, needs this, and it needs this and needs that, I see what church membership is getting, getting at. Church discipline requires an assembly. So there's a church, which means a group of people who gather together as a common identity. And as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, they assemble in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's happening. It requires fellowship. Believers with different gifts, different insights, who are actively involved in each other's lives, who are affirming our common identity as Christ's covenant people, citizens of God's kingdom who can notice when they're sent. They see it. It's like, you know, I've been noticing this. We need that. It involves communion, gathering at this table, one table as one people, where again we are affirming together that we are the forgiven, redeemed people of God. It requires this is, I think, for me, was the most challenging one, but I get it. It requires that the church makes an affirmation of someone else's faith. That we are saying, we think you're a Christian, or we're not. In baptism, why are we baptizing someone? Do we just, because we believe they've made the confession, that they've identified themselves with Christ as a follower of Christ. So in our baptism, we as a church are affirming, yes, we would baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's a reason why we don't do it like in the closet one-on-one, we try to gather as many people in the church together so we can together excitedly proclaim this, affirm this. Okay? Can we be wrong? Can you baptize someone who's not a Christian? It happens. It'll happen again. Okay? Time will tell, we hope. 
But in baptizing, we're making an affirmation. We believe, we believe that you are a Christian, and everything points to that. But then on the flip side, Christian discipline is saying the opposite. We don't think you are. So we have to. So we affirm or we do not affirm. Can we be right, wrong? Okay, it's finite fallen human beings. But God will take care of it. It requires discipleship. Discipline, discipleship, hear the common word? Because it's coming out of the same idea. That we are a group of people committed to helping each other grow, put off sin, that we're involved actively in obe- trying to keep each other obeying Christ together. We can gather as a church and not do any of this, or do barely some of it. We need all of this together as a church. Otherwise, discipline doesn't make sense. So we need this type of community. We need to identify each other's sin, help each other repent, and for freedom Christ has set us free. So now is the time to celebrate, to identify our common salvation, that we are the redeemed of Christ as people. We'll gather together at one table like a family would, share the same meal like a family would, and proclaim our freedom from sin. So if the ushers can come forward in the worship team.
You who think of sin lightly, nor suppose evil to be great, may hear you its nature rightly, and its guilt may estimate. Mark who died for you, the sacrifice who was appointed. See who it is who bore your sin. It was the Christ, the Word, the Lord anointed, the Son of Man, the Son of God, the incarnate one. Sin is not a trivial thing. In 1 Corinthians 11, which we often cite, communion, here's some other verses that are kind of around it. Some people were getting drunk at the feasts. Paul's condemning them. He says, Whoever therefore eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of Christ. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, and eats and drinks the judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Which discipline is unpleasant, but it's necessary, so that we would not be condemned along with the world. Those verses saved me, by the way. They actually did. Those are the verses that like, pierced my heart about judgment, God's wrath. Strange verses to be convicted by, but those were the ones. Dread came over me that I would not partake in the cup in an unworthy manner and made me start evaluating myself and wonder if I was going to be condemned with the Lord. And the truth was, I was. Raised in the church, you can look good. You can look like a Christian. But God gets to the heart with his judgment. Praise God. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father, I do not think, even in our best days, that we truly comprehend the depth, the wickedness of our sins, even the little ones that we think little of. But when we see that any transgression, however small, a single act of disobedience, eating a fruit that was forbidden, 
required that Christ would come and bear our sins and bear the eternal wrath of God on himself that we might be saved. Lord, you loved us. You've saved us. You saved us so we'd be free from sin, so that we could have peace with you. And if we're honest, the more we taste of you and taste of holiness, the more we want it. Somehow, we've made holiness our enemy and not our friend. Lord, we want to be holy like you. We want to be like our Father. But yet we cherish our sin. Lord, give us new desires. Let us see the wickedness and evilness for what it is. And Lord, I pray that you would bring believers into each other's lives that will call this out, that would help each other. Lord, you have put us together as a local congregation to help each other. I pray that we would help each other by your grace. Lord, we are all sinners. We all need your power. But Lord, we know for freedom Christ has set us free. and We are not enslaved to this any longer. But we are freed by Jesus. And your Holy Spirit indwells us to produce fruit in us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self you give that to us, Lord? Pray that you would purify us. Lord, let us be salt and light to our communities. Be salt and light to each other. We love you. Thank you. Thank you that you sent Jesus.